0: And Josh had to cancel his class due to his father being ill at the last minute, kind of an emergency type thing. So we want to be praying for laying reasons. And also tonight, um, Mike Burton was scheduled to minister to you and he became ill and was not able to be here tonight with us. So you're stuck with me tonight. Is that all right? So hopefully um, you, you'll get something out of this tonight. The Lord has laid something on my heart this afternoon as I begin to try to Open up, uh, Randy was going to do it, and I said, Randy, I just feel the Lord tugging at me, so I just went in my office, and the Lord began to just kind of lay something into my spirit. So we'll, we'll talk to you a little bit about it tonight. Let's just pray for those two men, and, and, and uh, I know there's a lot of sickness, but them are the ones that's been brought to our attention. Well, we pray for them real fast. Father, tonight, before we even open up the word of the Lord, we pray for our brothers tonight that fell ill. We pray, God, that you would minister the manifold grace of healing upon Lane Reasons and that his heart would get out of AFib and, Father, that it would go back into the normal heartbeat and the normal rhythm. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. We pray that you heal him and make him completely whole. We pray for Mike Burton tonight, Father, who was uh, to deliver the word. And we pray, God, that you will heal him of his sickness that's fell upon him. We pray, Lord, that you would reach down and minister to him right where he's at And bring him out of it. We pray and we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. And we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. Amen. Since it is the 4th of July, I kind of wanted to kind of pick up with some of the maybe teachings or some of the thoughts that I have about the founding of our nation. And I want to talk to you about two at least of our forefathers that helped frame this nation. I want to talk to you a little bit about John Adams and also about Thomas Jefferson because even though the two men were great and mighty men, they always did not see eye to eye, nor did they always get along, and sometimes they found themselves in very strained relationships with each other. When you study those two men, you're gonna find out that um, there was one time that they really went into battle when it came to an election for the presidency and um, their friendship was on the, on the line there at, at one particular time. And I wanna to talk to you a little about the perils of prayer. The perils of prayer because what these men fought over and what their accusations were all about were in the form of prayer. And and that's what we're all about here. Are we not all about prayer on Wednesday nights? We've set this aside for a devotion. I'm not gonna preach you a message. That's not why we're here. Even though us preachers do not know how to give devotions, we call messages devotions. So I'm gonna give you a devotion tonight, okay? And uh, that's what I'm going to try to do because I I get into it and then I get that want to, I I, I cannot teach very good because I'm a preacher and that comes out in me. But I'm going to try to slow down. I'm going to try to really stick to just some of my thoughts. I didn't have hours to put this together, but I threw something together here at the last moment. But I want to talk to you about the perils of prayer that happen among Thomas Jefferson and also uh, John Adams. Uh, One of the things I want you to know about prayer, it's the hardest thing that you'll ever do. Prayer does not come easy, it's hard work. Don't ever think that prayer is easy. I like it when the Lord makes it easy, when you fall on your knees and bam, the anointing of the Holy Spirit's there and bam, it's sweet, bam, it's easy, but that's very seldom. You have to work your way in. Sometimes you've got to pray through a lot of hindrances and a lot of stuff. And not only is it the hardest thing you'll ever do, it's the most fought thing that you'll ever do. And even in the time of the framing of, the fo- of our nation from these uh, founding fathers, they found themselves uh, being fought, and even though they prayed. And even though that we pray, and we're believers, and we come together on Wednesday nights, don't think for a minute the enemy won't even fight this prayer meeting. He'll do everything that he can. He'll have stir stuff up relationally, physically, mentally, emotionally. Get your mind on this. Fight this. Fight that. He'll bring up anything that he can to try to hinder the power of prayer in a church. Prayer is one of the most fought things that you'll do. When you commit your life to prayer, when you really say, I'm gonna make a difference, I'm going to change, I'm gonna commit myself, I'm gonna consecrate myself to regular, habitual prayer, I want you to know you're gonna be fought. It is a very natural thing to be fought, but I wanna tell you something, the very prayers that you pray is what's gonna help you to overcome the fight that's trying to keep you from praying, amen? And the third thing I want you to know about prayer, and not only is it the hardest thing you'll ever do, not only is it the most fought thing that you'll ever do, but it's also the most rewarding thing that you'll ever do because God rewards faith and God rewards prayer. How many believe that? How many really believe that God still answers prayer? You really believe God answers your prayer? Do you really believe God hears you when you pray when you don't feel a thing? When you're struggling to get the words out and when you kind of stumble and you, you know, you just sit down there and you you get repetitious and you lose your train of thought. How many believe that God still answers and understands and hears that type of prayer? Absolutely he does. Don't ever think that God, the moment you bow in humility and mention his name and bring yourself under subjection to prayer, that the minute you do that, God's listening to that prayer life. And I know there's times that our prayers are more powerful than others, or it seems that way to us, but nevertheless, God honors prayer. And it's one of the most rewarding things that we'll ever do. How many still believes that God rewards those that diligently seek him? Amen, is that not true? If we diligently seek him, he will reward us. How's he gonna reward us by answering our prayer? You know, uh, how many believe in the scripture and at Mark, or Matthew chapter seven, verse seven through nine, where he says, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, you shall find, knock, and it shall be opened to you. Everyone that asketh, receiveth, to him that seeketh, findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened to him. How many believe in that? Cheryl Lacey, you really believe that if you ask, you'll receive? Do you really? Um, Stephanie, do you really believe that when you seek, you'll find? How about the other Stephanie? Do you really believe if you knock, it'll be opened to you? You really believe that? And I do too, but why is it then, if we really believe that, why is it that that's the least thing that we do in life? Why is it that if we really believe that God will answer our prayers, that as we ask, we will receive, if we seek, we will find, if we not, it will be open to, it. then why is it, it's usually the last course that we do, it's the least amount of time that we spend our time on, why is not prayer the most priority, the number one priority of our life? Why is it that we got to go through all kinds of havoc and trouble and trial that will finally bend us down to our knees that will make us say, hey, i got to get serious about this because I've tried this. I've tried. We try everything else first, and if that does not succeed, then we'll say, oh, well, maybe I need to pray about it. Prayer seems to be on the bottom of the list. And yet we are here and been doing this now for going on around, what, four years? Well, then you and I, and I'm going to be honest with you, I think we're doing well. But I'm also here to tell you and warn you as a pastor, I thought we would have aggressed better than what we have. Because I feel like that sometimes we don't pray that much when we come up, we lose our trains of thought, when it's hard and when it's kind of not you know uh, easy and where there's not the liberty and where there's not the freedom, then we kind of just kind of come up and whisper a little bit and then we go back. And we are to have learned by now there is times that we have to persevere in order to get in the presence of God and we have to work at it. And somehow this prayer life, we are to get more mature in it. After four years of praying, we need to develop what we call a mature prayer life. Now, how many believe that we are to pray without ceasing? Isn't that what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16? Simple words, isn't it? Pray without ceasing. That means pray a lot. That means don't ever quit praying. That means continually. That means, hey, it is to be the priority. That's the precedence of what God wants in our lives. And then, how many believes James 4 and 2 where he says you have not because you ask not? These are just simple basic scriptures on prayer, are they not? In other words, he's saying if you don't ask, you're not gonna receive. In other words, if you don't petition, if you don't pray, if you don't seek, if you don't knock, then you're not gonna find, you're not gonna receive, and you're not gonna enter in to open doors. Nothing's gonna change, nothing's gonna happen, nothing's gonna transpire, there's not gonna be any kind of spiritual transformation, there's not gonna be any kind of renewal unless we learn how to literally ask and petition and believe God for it. It's not only asking, but it's believing. How many believe in Philippians four and six where Paul said, He said, be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious, don't be upset, don't be alarmed, don't be falling apart, don't be crying your eyes out. He said, unless it's a sin, and that's something we need to be crying about and weeping about. But he says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your request." be made known unto God. These are exhortations. Not only do we have a prayer, a petitioning, of requesting something from God, but he even says, you got to learn how to supplicate. you got to learn how to enter into that intercessory time. And you also got to have a thankful heart. I think sometimes our prayer life becomes nothing but a complaint session to God. And God gets weary in that stuff because it is a time to lay our burden down, but it's also a time to lay it down and not lay it out And just keep voicing it to God. Go in there with some faith and begin to magnify him with thanksgiving as well. Thanksgiving is a form of prayer. And then how many believe that nothing is impossible to them that believe? Amen? Mark 9, 23. Nothing is impossible to them that believe. If nothing is impossible, and if we have not because we ask not, and if we do ask we shall receive, then why in the world have we not grabbed a hold of this thing and thought, wow, look what we can do through prayer? Look what prayer can do. I heard a man say, prayer can do anything that God can do. Isn't that powerful? Prayer changes the course of history. How many are alarmed about our nation right now? I mean, folks, we're one step away from socialism. We're one step away, you seniors out there, those of you that have retirements, I'm not trying to scare you, some of you have been retired for 10, 15 years, you got these pensions, you like those pensions? If you go to a socialistic, you're gonna lose every pension that's out there, you're gonna lose your social security, you know why? Because our government can not sustain giving everything it's given to everybody. And let me tell you something, the stock market will crash all of your retirements. Guess where it's at, it's in the stock market. Amen, this is where we're headed in America. And you say, well, I don't like the picture that you're painting here. Well, then, I want to tell you something. Those of you that's worked like me, just in a few years, I'm going to get to draw a Social Security check. But the problem of it is I've already got a letter in the mail and said, by the time I get there, I've only got about one year to draw before it's broke. So what is the answer? I'm here to tell you nothing it's impossible to them to believe. And when I look and see what the founding fathers have done and the way they framed this thing and the faith that they put in it. And as they begin to pray, God kept this nation through peril, through war, through a depression, through, I just go on and on and on. and I better hurry on or we're not going to get to where I'm going to go. But John Adams, the second president of the United States of America, issued a prayer proclamation in which he declared upon the whole young nation of the United States. He said, the safety and the prosperity of nations ultimately and essentially depend upon the protection and the blessings of Almighty God. How many believe in that statement? Do you really believe that the safety and the prosperity of of this nation ultimately and essentially depends upon the protection and the blessing of Almighty God, you believe that? Then why don't we invoke the name of Jesus? If we believe that, we need be calling out because if we believe that prosperity, safety, protection comes literally by Almighty God, then we better as Christians get on our face and do a different kind of war than our forefathers done. They done a blood battle war as well as a spiritual war, but we got a spiritual war to fight here in order to save our nation, amen? Adams called the national acknowledgement of this truth an indispensable duty which we, the people, owe to God. He said, without it, social happiness cannot exist, nor the blessings of a free government be enjoyed. Hello? Glory, there we go. Adams believed when a nation had series of difficulty and independent danger and uh, threatening calamities that they were actually allowed call to repentance and reformation from God. He really believed that. He believed that when something came in a form of a a independent danger or a, a threatening disaster upon the nation, he would say, this is God speaking to us. That's what he thought. And let me say, we have lost that. Now I know natural things happen. If a tree falls over out in the middle of the woods because it's hollow and it's old and it's been hit by lightning and it's weak, it's got a weak root system and the wind comes and it blows it over, that's not God speaking to us. That's just nature running its course. But let me tell you, some of the national disasters that we are experiencing, some of the storms that we're experiencing and the things that's taken over widespread over this nation is God talking to this nation. Believe me or not believe me, but I'll tell you how I can prove it because the word of God says in the book of Psalms, all the way from Psalms 148 and 149, all the way up into where he tells you to praise him in 150, it tells you that the wind, the the storms, the vapor, the hell, the smoke, the stormy weather are all fulfilling his word. And then he goes on and even talks about how the lightning and the thunder are his voice speaking from the heavens. Can of heaven, Amen. He even talks about the the uh, even uh, the snowy weather, even declaring his words. In other words, he's talking it in the form of blizzards and things of that nature. That God's talking to a people, and uh, you know what? Adam's believed that, and he believed when there's national tragedies and when things of this nature happen, God's trying to get somebody's attention somewhere, and because Adam believed in this and he believed in the power of prayer and he believed that the nation can only be blessed and protected and kept by God. He therefore called the nation to prayer due to his belief. He put actions to his prayer. He didn't just speak words but he actually believed in the principle of prayer by saying the following words. He said, I have therefore thought it fit to recommend that Wednesday, the ninth day of May, next to be observed throughout the United States as a day of solemn humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Did you hear what he added to it? Be humble, fast, and pray. He says that citizens of these states abstaining on that day from their customary warly occupations. Now listen to what he's saying. You gotta catch this. He is actually saying that when I call you to this day of prayer on May the 9th of this year, On this coming Wednesday, he says, I want every citizens of the United States to stop working. Do not go to work that day. Completely stop the nation. And he said, I want you to refrain from your customary worldly occupations. Offer your devout addresses to the Father of mercies during that time. He went on to say, Father that all religious congregations do with the deepest humility acknowledge before God the manifold sins and transgressions which we are, which we are justly chargeable as individuals and as a nation beseeching him through the redeemer to remit all of our offences Now, he tells you, okay, those of you that work, don't go to work on that day, he said, I want you to solemnly, with fasting and prayer, seek the face of God, and I want you to call upon the mercy of God, and then he looks at the church, and he says, now, church, understand this principle, that judgment begins in the house of God. It starts with us. So the first thing that we have to do is, he said, confess before God our manifold sins. There's many of them, he says, And then he says, and our own transgressions, which is different than sin, transgression is knowing the law, don't care what the law says, and doing something contrary to it anyway, sin is where you sin ignorantly and you do things that you don't know that's right or wrong, and it's, you're, you're still coming short of the glory of God, but there's a greater offense of transgression. And he's telling you, he's saying, then the church is to confess these sins and these transgressions before God, which we are justifiable charged by. He said we're guilty of them. He said all of us are guilty. Before we preach at a nation, we got to preach to ourselves is what he's saying. He said before the nation can be right, the church has to be right. Amen? Am I teaching all right this tonight? He said before you demand these duties on someone out there, demand them on yourself. Make sure that what you are proclaiming to others we are doing That's what he's saying. Don't ask other people to pray if we're not praying. Don't get on to our government for not having prayer in school, prayer in courthouses, prayer before uh, football games anymore. You know, done, eliminated all of those kinds of things. And we want to curse them and say, look what they've done. They took prayer out of school. We don't pray before ball games. We don't pray now, blah, blah, blah. And in reality, God's saying, well, yeah, but the church ain't praying either. So why should the church expect the government to pray when it don't even pray? So that's what he's saying here. And then, in 1799, when the new nation was threatened by war with France, President Adams declared a day of prayer, urging Americans to: to "This is his quote. Call to mind our numerous offenses again against the Most High God, confess them before Him with the sincerest penitence, employ His pardoning mercy." through the great mediator and redeemer, and that through the grace of his Holy Spirit, we may yield a more suitable obedience to his righteous requisitions. Isn't that a powerful statement? How many love that? You love it? Well, I want to tell you, there's a bunch of people that didn't like it during the day of Adams, and they were Christians, and they were part of another church than what he come out of. Sadly, jealousy was festering among this young nation, among Christians. Now listen to what they warred against. Some feared that one of them might get the advantage over another because you had the Puritists, you had the Baptists, you had the Presbyterians, you had all these different denominations as we do now. Some took an offense to what Adams just said. Now let me see if you can find any offense in this. You want me to, I want to read it again. And somebody tell me if you see anything that's offensive, okay? He says, I call to mind our numerous offenses against the most high God. Any offense in that? Anywhere? For someone to tell you to do that? I confess them before him with the sincerest penance or repentance. Is there any offense in that? Does anybody see any offense in that? Okay. Employ his pardoning mercy. Any offense in that? through this great mediator and redeemer, any offense in that? And that through the grace of his Holy Spirit, we may yield a more suitable obedience to his righteous requisitions. Is there anybody that sees any kind of offense in that paragraph? Well, I'm sad to say that in the day of Adams, there were. When Adams called for the day of prayer, he was falsely accused by the backers of Jefferson who was running against him for president of a conspiracy. They said that he was uh, conspiring with the Presbyterians in which he was not a Presbyterian at all. They acknowledged that he spoke of the Most High God. He even mentioned the title of the Holy Spirit in his address. But even though he mentioned that that we must employ the mercies of the Most High God through the great Mediator and Redeemer, yet because... He did not publicly mention the Mediator and the Redeemer's name as Jesus Christ and embraced the divinity of Jesus Christ openly. They rejected his call to prayer. Think about that. The Presbyterians promoted the day of prayer that he done. All of the other, most, most, all, I shouldn't say all, but most of all the other denominations resisted that call to prayer. Over that simplicity of, of a, a, a mistake of him not mentioning Jesus Christ. Sadly, we know that Jefferson used this matter to his own political power as he went around and campaigned. He was saying, This man don't even believe that Jesus is the mediator. And it hurt it to the point that literally the historians say that this battle between Jefferson and Adams became so intense that it became deeply personal between the two and that it was, it was uh, vilifying. They were looking at each other as villains. And Adam lost the election. He lost his presidency over this by eight votes. And he would relate as he uh, as he would reflect upon what he'd done. Listen to what he says. It's some of the saddest words in our history. Oh, man. Doggone time goes by fast. He says, the confusion surrounding my call to prayer was the deciding factor the national fast recommended by me turned me out of office. Did you hear that? The confusion surrounding my call to prayer was the deciding factor of the election. The national fast that I recommended turned me out of office. Can you imagine a president of the United States getting up and saying, hey, we want to bring this nation to its knees. We want to bring it to a time of repentance. And it would cost him the election. Folks, right now, our president's being fought over the very same thing. Whether you know it or not when anybody addresses or employs the name of God in our nation now, they are looked at and judged as if we're judging everybody else to be sinners and they look at us as an arrogant, pompous people, for right extremists that demands that they comply to the God that we serve. That's what's happening. Can you imagine on the other side of the coin that just because Adam unintentionally did not use the name of Jesus, though that's who he was referring to as mediator and redeemer in his speech, in his address, it cost him the election. But listen, people were so centered on the Bible and biblical truth to govern them that just him not mentioning the name of Jesus Christ, that was the most important name to this nation, cost him an election. Now, let me ask you a question. Nowadays, if we invoke the name of Jesus, it's offensive. Back then, if you did not invoke the name of Jesus, you were not considered worthy to even be in office. See the difference? And even though this happened, Adams remained resolute on the national dependence of faith and prayer. Adams realized the design of the government for free men demanded self-government with a moral A grounding. Listen to what he said. In his first address to Congress, November the 23rd, 1797, listen to Adams. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, in other words, what he's saying is, is that if we don't keep ourselves in check and balances with God, then the way that they set up the government will mean nothing to us, and it won't work. And nowadays, folks, that's exactly where we're at. People could care less that our founding fathers put this nation on, in the constitution of this nation uh, wrapped around God. They could care less about God. You're saying, I can't imagine. And you try to talk to them about it. They could care less that you're wanting God to be involved or not. Amen? Let's now look at Jefferson for a minute. We know very little about Jefferson. We are constantly told in history and different textbooks that Jefferson was not a Christian. And, if he, and even though he claimed to be somewhat uh, yielded to Christ, yet they said it was all superficial. It would surprise some to know, though, that the design of this great government seal that he created, and it was offered by Jeff, uh, Jefferson to the government, suggested these words that rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. The front of the seal would have depicted has depicted Moses leading Israel through the Red Sea on the way to the promised land as a peril to our settlement of the new world. See how biblical he was? His habit was to sign his documents in the year of our Lord Christ. He mentioned Christ, invoking Christ on official government documents In November of 1800, the United States Capitol was first opened its doors. And one of the first acts of Congress was the approval to use the building as a church. That act is found in the congressional record on November the 4th of 1800. The bill had to be approved by both the House and by the Senate. John Trumpel was the Speaker of the House and Jefferson at that time was the President of the Senate. And not only did Jefferson approve that bill, to let the church come in and have church in that building, that government building. But the hall of the House of Representatives where the services were held became his church in which he attended every Sunday and he ordered the Marine Band to come as a church orchestra to play for his congregation. Don't tell me that our forefathers legislated separation of church and state is the way that they're trying to to cram it down our throats today. Here's the prayer for the nation written by and offered by Thomas Jefferson. Almighty God, who has given this good land and for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable ministry, sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogance, and from ever evil way. Defend our liberties. Fashion it into one united people, the multitude brought here out of many kinders and tongues. In other words, unify us. Endow with thy spirit of wisdom those whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government, that there may be justice and peace at home, and that through obedience to thy law we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In time of prosperities, fill our hearts with thankfulness, And in the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail, all of which we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice especially those last lines, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jefferson, perhaps remembering the uh, tactic that he used to defeat Adams, he never called for a National Day of Prayer, even though he invoked prayer. Even though Washington did and Adams did, he said, I'm not going to do that. But Jefferson did attend prayer meetings that was conducted in the United States Capitol every day. And it started in 1802. His daughters, Martha, Maria, often accompanied him with two two grandchildren also accompanied him. He brought his family to the house of prayer. Jefferson stood shoulder to shoulder with the members of Congress along with his family praying. And let me say this. Before it was over, even though there was a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of things that happened, during one of the prayer meetings, Jefferson's and Adams embraced and made their differences, settled their differences and they became friends. That's the power of prayer. Amen. That's just a little history lesson. We're done. I think, would you stand with me tonight, please? This nation was founded upon people that believed in the power of prayer they literally believe that this nation could not sustain itself nor would it endure without us holding valid to these truths of spiritual warfare, of, of prayer, and petitioning God. We, he, They believe without a shadow of a doubt the only hope of a nation is a people who will surrender themselves to the will of God. In the name of Jesus, right now, Bill be healed. I don't know what's going on, with you, you lift your hands this way, I feel oppressed to pray for Bill. Hallelujah. Father, right now in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, Father, I rebuke the attack upon your servant of God. I pray right now, Father, whatever's going on in his life right now, Father, whatever attack is upon his physical body, that you would remove it right now in the name of Jesus. Let us see the power of prayer. You said ask, we would receive. You said seek, we would find. You said knock and it shall be opened. For everyone that asketh, receive it. To he that seeketh, find it. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. We ask, seek, and knock right here, right now for total health, healing, and wholeness in the name of Jesus upon the body of Bill Marvin and in the body of Bill Marvin in Christ's holy name. Amen and amen. amen. Father, right now I pray over this congregation. Right now I pray, Father, as we enter in this time to prayer that you will meet us here. I pray that we understand the, understand the necessity, the importance. God, I pray that the, the emergency, the alarms being sounded throughout this nation of where it's headed, God. Everything in the world is turning so rapidly, and everything is accelerating in these last days. And I pray, God, right now, that it not happen on the watch of the church. That, God, before you come and get your church, I pray for national revival. I pray, God, for national transformation. I pray that we as a people understand, God, what is about to come up on the earth, but yet we can hold it off. We can, we can push it back until the time you take the church out, and then it can have its full impact to do what it needs to do. But, God, while we're here on watch as your faithful people, as we are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, full of authority and power, we pull down every stronghold. God, we bind every evil forward. Ever evil force, and we sit here proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. To be Lord of this nation, to be Lord of this people, America, to be a Lord of this church, God, in the name of Jesus. And now, Lord, as we come, help us to fall under the burden of prayer and help us to stain the great liberties and wherein our forefathers and the framers of this nation set in an emotion. Let us preserve and keep that which they entrusted to this generation. Help us not fail them. Let their faith, God, not die in vain, but help us uphold that. God which they initiated and started let us fulfill it in Christ's name would you come and pray please over your nation or pray right where you're at you can do whatever you desire in the name of Jesus